Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. So it is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Sean Westmoreland. Westmoreland is a former Air Force technician. He served in Kandahar Airfield, Afghanistan at the 73rd Expeditionary Air Control Squadron. He assisted in building a signal relay station that was used for transmitting and receiving data, radio, radio picture for unmanned, that is drones and manned missions for approximately 250,000 square miles over Afghanistan. He is no longer in the military and is a member of Veterans for Peace and Iraq Veterans Against the War. Sean Westmoreland, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you for for speaking about this. I imagine it uh, can be difficult at times. I wonder if we could start just briefly with how you got into the military in the first place. Well, um, my father uh, was in the Air Force. He's a Russian linguist, and we um, traveled around quite a lot. Essentially, my whole life has been, you know, uh, surrounded by uh, the military. And uh, I guess when I was 17, um, my parents got a divorce because my father came out as, as being gay, and I was related, uh, raised um, religious my whole life. So um, I guess I, I was kind of looking for uh, a sort of stability in my life, and I also wanted to serve my country. I was, I was very affected by uh, 9-11, um, and I was uh, dating somebody at the time who, who tried to kill herself, so I kind of, uh, I, was, I was looking to escape, and I was looking to uh, do something meaningful with my life. Um, I didn't really have too many options in the town that I grew up in. I've seen some uh, some interviews and, and statements you've made and applaud you for speaking out about drones together with three other former members of the military, uh, Brandon Bryant, Michael Haas, and Stephen Lewis. You together sent a letter to President Obama and Secretary of so-called Defense Carter and CIA Director Brennan. I saw that you said that your rethinking of what you were doing in Afghanistan and and thinking about what you might be doing to innocent victims was sort of begun when a mortar strike landed near you, which seems in need of explanation. A threat to yourself resulted in your thinking about the threat being caused to others. How how did that happen? I mean, we, we landed in Afghanistan. It was right during a, uh, a mortar attack and we heard bombs outside the plane. So that was my first introduction to Kandahar. Um, and I, the, the next few weeks, there was quite a few more strikes after that. And my uh, site was in a um, sort of barren part of the base uh, right next to a uh, double chain link fence. Um, and that was really all that was protecting us from the outside. And every day you would see uh, a, a shepherd and his, his kids uh, take their flock uh, nearby the fence because that's where the water ran. They would, the kids would, you know, stand there for a while and watch us, and they would beg for water or candy or something. And I'd always want to give it to them. You know, I'm not, um, I'm kind of a, I've got a big heart, I guess. And my commander told us not to, and I guess that's for our own safety. I mean, they have uh, they, they, you know, the tactics um, that are employed by um, the. Uh, Taliban or whatever uh, group is angry 
at us at that time that was sort of blanket under the Taliban. You know, I I would look at them and I, I would just think, you know, every day, uh, like I'm, I'm watching them and they're begging for water. And here behind me is a, is a McDonald's and, you know, a Tim Hortons and, you know, all these, these luxuries of home, you know, and it's, it's kind of... Uh, Kind of, kind of ridiculous, but it's also, um, you know, I know it's used for R and R for the people that are uh, out in in the field, but at the same time, it's also just sort of, I don't know, uh, insulting. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. So we had several uh, mortar attacks, uh, and uh, once when I was on uh, guard duty um, for the compound, I. Uh, had a mortar land about 100 feet away from me. I, I started having nightmares about um, the, the mortars attacks and being attacked and just, you know, threat to my own life. And um, I know other people in the tent were as well. Like, you would hear people randomly in the middle of the night roll over off their tots onto the ground. I guess I started thinking, you know, uh, here I am in the military and I'm, I'm kind of scared uh, for my life at points. Um, and I'm looking at these kids, and this is their everyday reality, and this is what they're they're having to go through. Um, and I, I I started thinking about you know what people's lives, how how they're how they're affected out there in the villages, and you know these places that were bombing. Um, I mean, I spent about three years of my childhood in um, a country called Armenia. It was right after the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, about 1997. Um, there's people freezing out there in the, you know, in the countryside, and you know they can't, they don't have gas lines out there. They can't afford wood, and people are starving, and you know, and I've seen these, these conditions, and they're very similar to what the conditions were of the people in Afghanistan. Maybe were quite possibly worse, way worse than than uh, in Armenia, but I. I'm thinking about these daily issues that these people have to deal with, um, and in addition to um, being, you know, under constant coercion of uh, either the, the coalition militaries or the uh, or the, uh, the the Taliban, so to speak. And a couple of weeks later, after after the mortar hit, I uh, my boss uh, pulled us around the uh, the equipment uh, that we set up there, and uh, he handed us a headset and he. He said, uh, uh, well, he handed us to listen, and Aiton speaking to a battle manager, and uh, he smiled and he said, we're killing bad guys now, boys. And I knew enough about airstrikes. I knew from what my father um, spoke about being in the, the headquarters in Kuwait during the initial bombing of Afghanistan that people making decisions aren't, you know, always uh, really considering the people on the ground. They're... They're really just looking for, you know, notches to put under their belt so they can get awards and um, decorations. In, in uh, fact, you've said that your father said that uh, anyone wearing white was presumed Taliban and uh, justified as a, a target. Is that right? In the early days of Afghanistan, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's changed, but um, I guess that kind of is reflective of the... Uh, military mentality um you know it's our leadership um 
isn't quite the same as the leadership we had in, in World War II per se. It's, uh, it's, it's more or less a for-profit venture. Um, when you get out of the military, you uh, expect to get a job in the uh, defense sector, um, an executive position. And um, really, like, it's about racking up as, as many awards and decorations as you possibly can. Um, there's a lot of competition. And uh, I, I think that kind of is, is a conflict of interest from, um, you know, actually fixing the, the situation. Because if they're, if, if they're offered future prospects of uh, a high-paying position on the outside of the military, then they have an incentive to keep wars going and keep, um, keep the conflict there. Um, and I, I just, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I was, I was offered a, a position with a few uh, defense contractors after I got out and I refused. And, uh, I was offered re-enlistment bonus and I, I didn't take it. But, um, you know, a lot of people do and a lot of, uh, a lot of, Officers do. You were offered quite well-paying jobs and uh, and chose to get out. Yeah. And and you were you know your uh, colleague in this uh, in this mission of of speaking out now. Uh, Brandon Bryant has famously uh, said in many interviews that he was given a piece of paper uh, crediting him with being part of, I think it was over 1,600 kills. Um, and you've said that you were uh, credited with over 200, uh, being part of missions with over 200 enemy kills. Um, but I imagine there was no detail there in terms of how the, the so-called enemies were identified. Uh, and you later, you've said, saw in a United Nations report uh, for 2009 that there were some 359 civilians killed by airstrikes that they had identified. Um, so you weren't quite given the full story, I imagine. No, and most uh, most people aren't. Um, with with Brandon, it, it actually, uh, that was that was the number his uh, his unit, um, you know, that was credit credited for. Um, he himself was he he's credited with uh, with thirteen, um, and thirteen or thirteen hundred. Well, it, it was it was thirteen kills that he actually pushed the button on. I see, and uh, you know the the larger number is what the um, the unit. Did, but these were missions that he was part of. And and you didn't push a button on any. You were not the so-called pilot, right? No. Uh, he was he was a sensor operator, so he guided the missile in. And I was a technician to build the infrastructure uh, for this to take place. And I, I guess my under my perspective of it is that um, here was this the system that we built, and it was a point of failure. If the system went down, people on um, the uh, the American side may, might die, especially if it's like a uh, you know troops in contact situation. Um, and if it was up, then people on the other side would die. So the the Afghan. Um, so it if you could see that you know that link there, um, 
and and understand that you know your daily activities and making the system work and and building the system is actually you know allowing for all these people to um, to engage um, with people on the ground um, then I, I just started to develop a new kind of understanding of what what modern warfare actually is uh, we're, we're moving towards a more network centric warfare so uh, you know orders uh, delves out over over a network and um, making systems more uh, autonomous putting less humans in the chain and um, a lot of the positions are going to be maintenance they're going to be uh, their technician jobs to keep these systems up and running um, so what is warfare going to turn into uh, when when you have situations like that when you have autonomous um, you know robots uh, either on the ground or in the air uh, making kill decisions and kind of back to what you were you were saying, um, yeah, my my unit was uh, credited with 200 plus enemy kills, um, and uh, we got that in our uh, performance reports and on our uh, our meritorious unit award. And um, yeah, my achievement medal. Um, so it's. Uh, It, it was kind of it was kind of something to wrap my head around um, when when I found that out. I, I, I was always resistant to the idea of, of killing, and I I convinced myself otherwise uh, just to get the job done um, because there's also this uh, this feeling that I need to uh, be supportive of my unit, and um, you know I signed the line, so I bought that that whole thing. It's like. You, you know, you side in the line, you have a, you swore an oath, you do your job. Um, so I never really questioned that publicly. And uh, I I did my job, and now I have to, I have to live with that. Um, but you tell yourself while you're doing it that you're, that you're saving U.S. lives and you're supporting your unit and you're fulfilling your promise and your, and your oath, uh, and, uh, and you don't stop and question every moment, what if this war weren't happening at all? <laughs> then I wouldn't have to be here uh, choosing between U.S. and Afghan lives. Um, I, I was very interested in a, in a comment you made that you wrote about that you were uh, in a, I guess, a college course and you were shown, you and your classmates were shown the collateral murder video uh, of killing from the air in Iraq uh, that was released by WikiLeaks and uh, and you as a, a former member of the U.S. military were sort of looked to uh, as having some some expertise and the professor asked you uh, and and you said uh, and I and I took it that you thought he expected you to immediately completely denounce uh, the the actions in the video as criminal uh, and instead you said it was the heat of the moment those guys probably hadn't slept the video feeds are grainy you can't tell if they're holding weapons or something else they could be insurgents they could be anyone I would have made them the same mistake. Um, that that may not be what the, what the professor was expecting, uh, and I think it's not what I would be uh, expecting. Um, 
is that your is that your view of, of the situation those pilots were in and others are in once they're they're in warfare it's just too difficult to to make decisions against killing well um You have to kind of look at the uh, the background of uh, what a uh, U.S. military person goes through. They uh, they go through basic training, and essentially there they're, they're um, coerced into um, you know following this chain of command that uh, that you wouldn't otherwise as a civilian, and you do so out of fear. Um, so in a sense a lot of people in the military fear their leaders more than they do the enemy. Um, and there's also um, quite a bit of uh, like linguistic distortion of, of reality in, um, in, in situations of war. You uh, use words that dehumanize you uh, from the enemy so that you don't have to confront the fact that you're killing people. Um, and there's also, uh, I don't know if you've, you've ever, like, read the, the Milgram experiments. Sure. Um, and uh, there's a part where it talks about how uh, when they were, they were trying to find out the resistance of a person uh, to administering these, these uh, you know, uh, lethal shocks, so to speak, um, which weren't actually lethal, it was acted, but... Um, they found that uh, when a person is behind the window, um, they're more likely to follow through with uh, with orders from uh, positions of authority. And when they're, you know, face to face, the the likelihood of that that happening is is much lower. Um, so even a window could be a uh, a sort of a barrier. Uh, to our humanity um, in situations. And um, I guess what that, well, when, when you consider that you're, when you're looking at imagery on the ground and you're looking through these grainy feeds, um, you're told that there was uh, gunfighting in the area before and uh, before the, um, before this incident occurred. And, um, you know, most most of the people in areas of, of gunfighting. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the civilians leave, um, but you know, in this case, uh, they were all civilians, and they were reporters in in an area where there had just been a gun battle. Um, so they weren't. They probably weren't even looking for cameras, and they were they were just looking for you know things that they could identify as, as possible weapons. And a lot of these pilots and, and people in the military are, are sleep-deprived, um, you know, because you're, you're getting shelled in the night, and, uh, you know, and you're, you're also probably dealing with uh, some, some PTSD at the time, you know, because of traumatic experiences that you've, you've experienced. Um, and nightmares, things like that. I'm not saying this is across the board or that these people even had it. I'm just trying to offer a um, possible explanation. But um, 
I think when you're put in these, these situations of war, you're not really operating under the same moral guidelines as you would if you're uh, in peace times. Um, you're, you're forced to sort of resort like to your more primitive brain, I guess you would say. Uh, the uh, fight or flight responses, and it's yeah, it's not a it's not a justification for what they did. There is no justification for what they did, but I can see how that happened. That's that's essentially what I was saying. Yeah. Um and and I guess I was I was disturbed in that classroom that I didn't think of the Geneva Convention. Um, first off. You know, the, uh, yeah, the class discussion was about the Geneva Convention. Why didn't they just follow the rules? And uh, and yet, as far as I know, there's never been a war that followed the Geneva Conventions. Uh, there's no real empirical way to test whether an action does follow the Geneva Conventions in most cases. Uh, and uh, and the criticisms you're, or the, the description you're offering of what it's like to participate uh, in a war suggests that it's very unlikely uh, that you're going to be able to create a, a, a civilized uh, rule-following war. Um, in addition, some of the criticisms we've heard about the drone wars uh, suggest that the drones in particular are a problem uh, and we should have wars without them, but here you're talking about manned pilots in the collateral murder video. Uh, is there is there some way to clean up and civilize war, or is the problem the institution of war itself? I think our country is is very quick to go to war, and it's been very quick since nine eleven. It's uh, we've had a very reactive, um, you know, presence around the world as, as a result of nine eleven. Um, so this, this global war on terror, uh, it's. Uh, I, I personally feel that it's a uh, it's it's kind of a it's a way to get into countries we wouldn't have otherwise uh, gotten into. Um, I believe uh, Wesley Clark was talking about um, how he heard in the Pentagon that they were going to attack seven countries in seven years. Yep, and uh, the neoconservative groups within um, Washington uh, believe that uh, we need to establish a, a unipolar world, a, a one like a Pax Americana, um, and uh, take, the, uh, take Russia down uh, and, and China down, uh, you know, a notch, uh, or, you know, uh, take take them down to a you know so that they're not a superpower uh, so that uh, we can have uh, coercive influence over them as well um, and you know in international relations theory you actually you actually find that um, you know several scholars believe that uh, you know a unipolar world is one of the most unstable. Uh, you know, geopolitical uh, structures um, out there uh, because when you have a single power that is exerting influence on the entire world, then people bandwagon against um, that that influence. Um, and 
I think neoconservatism, you know, it, there's there's people who are neoconservatives that are probably coming from, you know, a, a place of, you know, wanting to establish a more long-term peace. But I don't think doing so through, you know, the barrel of a gun is a way to achieve that peace. It's, it's a way to um, subjugate other um, other groups of people. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, there seems to be a growth in recruitment for anti-American organizations as a direct result of the the fighting that is supposed to eliminate those organizations. And I, I mean, I've been collecting statements from people who point out the counterproductive nature of what the U.S. military is doing on its own terms, including former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Michael Flynn, former director of national intelligence, Dennis Blair, former deputy director of CIA, Michael Morrill, former CIA bin Laden unit chief, Michael Schur, and, and dozens more. And it's always former. It's always someone who's left the military. No right. one no one in the military says what we're doing is counterproductive. But do they know it? Do they know? Do do people at high levels in the U.S. military know that what they're doing is counterproductive, or do they believe they're going to eliminate terror? I can't. I can't really answer that question because I. I mean, I know uh, Stanley McChrystal came out and he, he spoke against the uh, the the, war, the drone warfare. Yeah, create um, ten for every was, innocent you kill. He said. Yeah, he was he was my commander at the time in Afghanistan. Um, back to back to drones. Drones are kind of a uh, a political tool to maintain a sustained uh, coercive influence uh, on these countries. Um, there isn't uh, people dying as a result of it. I mean, not through direct conflict. So um, it's it's less of a uh, you don't have to win the hearts and minds of the public to do it. Um, and in order to sort of push forward this, uh, this uh, global military uh, presence or full-spectrum dominance is, is kind of the, the military lingo for what they're wanting to do, um, then you need to have weapons that, can, that, that don't really have uh, the issue of... Um, you know, uh, having um, dying or you know getting uh, captured or whatnot. Um, and uh, as far as uh, as far as the drones go, I, I just I, I don't think that they're a they're a great tool. I don't think warfare in general is should be used as a, a first measure by any means. I mean, we're the, we're the most powerful country in the world. We can find ways to uh, find peace diplomatically, but I mean, we the number of diplomats we have in the world is about as many personnel as we have in junior mid-class uh, aircraft carriers. Um, I don't think it's, it's proportional, and I don't think uh, we really focus so much on diplomacy, but diplomacy is used uh, to use in conjunction with military action. Um, 
we're, we're, I'm afraid, going to have to continue this conversation in a future interview. Uh, there are a million topics I would love to have gotten to. Sean Westmoreland uh, is working on incredible projects uh, that we haven't even touched on. Go to projectredhand.org to learn more. Sean, thank you so much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. No problem. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.